We're reading this morning the very end of First Peter. Chapter 5, starting at verse 8 and going all the way to the very end. And if you're reading from your pew Bible, it looks like this. It's page 1892. As we come to scripture, as we come to God's word, let us pray for the Holy Spirit's guidance. Please pray with me. Our faithful God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways in which you strengthen us through it that you speak to us through it. The ways that your spirit moves in our hearts, in our ears, in our lives, seeing the way that you are leading us, guiding us and strengthening us, enabling us to be more and more like your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. So as we come to your word this morning, may we be open and ready to receive what your spirit is saying to us. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So the word of God from 1 Peter, chapter 5, verses 8, right through to the end. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this, this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The word of the Lord. Before we turn our attention fully to 1 Peter here and how Peter ends and wraps up his letter, I want to take us back a moment to the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 16, around verse 13, if you want to follow along, but I'm going to tell the story. So if you want to follow along, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. 
when you pick up there in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus and his disciples have been walking, walking for a long time already, along a dusty road. And they stop to rest for a little while before continuing on, give their feet a rest, take a breather. And they're somewhere on the outskirts of Caesarea Philippi. They're not really quite sure where they are because the road has been lonely for quite some time. And they've been lost in their own thoughts. Because the disciples are still wondering and pondering and processing the last tussle that Jesus had with the Pharisees. How authoritative he was with them. And, and before that, they're still wondering and processing how Jesus had taken seven small loaves of bread and broke them, and broke them, and broke them, and broke them until he fed 4,000 people from those seven loaves. And the disciples are still thinking even back before that moment when, when they were in their boat on the water and, and Jesus came walking toward them. And they sat there frightened, rubbing their eyes. They're going along the road, wondering just who Jesus is. How do they make sense of all that they have seen and witnessed together as his disciples? And they're sitting there on the side of the road with their tired feet and their uncertain thoughts. And Jesus asked them a question. as if he could read their minds. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And the disciples looked around at each other, wondering how to answer. So they start tossing a few answers out. Well, some say John the Baptist, but others, they say Elijah. Then there are others who say, dear Jeremiah, and, and then there's others who say the Son of Man has to at least be one of the prophets. Ballpark guess. And then they continue to toss questions or answers out to the question, who's the Son of Man? And then Jesus clarifies his question for them. What about you? Who do you say I am? As if Jesus knew that on that long walk, they were wondering and uncertain and trying to make sense of all that they were seeing and learning and living as followers of him. Could he really be the Messiah. We hope he is, but is he? Is he just a prophet? Is he just a rabbi? Who is this man we follow? And then a clear, strong voice pierces their uncertainty and says, with confidence, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And that's Peter's voice. That's Peter's statement of faith, his profession of faith. That's Peter's certainty. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus turns to Peter, says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. Before this, Peter was not his name. He was Simon. Jesus gives him a new name and says, I tell you that you are Petros, rock, Peter. 
and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. That moment changed Peter's life. That conversation changed Peter's life. That profession of faith changed Peter's life. Right there on the side of the road, somewhere in the countryside of Caesarea Philippi, Peter was changed. He didn't just get a new name. He got a whole new purpose. He was no longer just a former fisherman who was following a rabbi along some dusty roads. Simon, now Peter, was a witness to the life, to the teaching, and eventually to the death and the resurrection of the promised Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Christ. And it's from that life-changing moment on the side of the road after a long journey that Peter lived a whole life of faith full of ups and downs that brought him to being the pastor who wrote the letter that we have been traveling with and learning from for the past few weeks. Because the Peter who forbid Jesus any talk of his suffering is now the Peter, now the pastor, <laughs> who instructs others how to suffer like Jesus. The Peter who fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of the death of his Lord is now the Peter who tells us in this letter three times, be alert, awake, be awake. The Peter who lashed out with a sword in hand against those who came to take Jesus away is now the same Peter who encourages others to do good to those who persecute you. And the Peter who denied Jesus three times in the darkest hours of Jesus' life on earth is the same Peter who now, as a pastor, here at the end of 1 Peter, encourages Christians to stand firm in their faith. Same Peter. And as Peter draws his letter to a close, to his brothers and sisters who are suffering, who have been enduring many trials, a letter that was meant to encourage and uplift them, to give them hope in the midst of what they are going through, in the midst of their own darkness. Pastor Peter closes with one final exhortation. Be alert and of sober mind. For your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. As Peter ends his letter, as Pastor Peter ends this letter, he puts their suffering and their trials in a bigger context than he has dared to do before. Because so far, Peter has talked about the sufferings of his readers at the hands of non-Christians, of their non-Christian family members and co-workers and government officials, former friends. These are the ones who have belittled them and bullied them. 
who have beaten them and killed them. But Peter says, they are not your enemies. Those who beat you and kill you and bully you and belittle you, though they are not your enemies. Remember, remember who the real enemy is. Remember that your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Remember that your enemy, the accuser, stalks you, waiting for an opportunity to tempt you into sin just when you might fall. And if that doesn't work, then ramping up the pierced persecution that is heaped on your head in order to break you. Remember that your enemy wants to swallow you whole. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. The enemy. Does that make you slightly uneasy? C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, lays out a very modern danger of talking about the enemy, about the devil, about our accuser. Lewis says that there are two extremes to avoid. The first extreme is to dismiss the very idea, to abstract the enemy. Because thinking and dismissing the enemy as a creature with horns and a tail and a pitchfork, which is common in our popular culture, well, that's just silly, and we're too grown up to believe anything like that. So we dismiss the entire idea of our enemy, of an accuser, waiting around to devour us. We dismiss it. It's the result of an overactive, silly, childish imagination for people who are not as modern and sophisticated as we are. Lewis says that's one extreme. The second extreme is to get so taken up with the idea of the enemy, with the idea of Satan, that we give Satan credit for everything. For every malady, every sickness, every bad thing, everything that pops up that, that, that's not going our way, that's Satan's influence. And that extreme is so dangerous because it makes Satan so much more powerful than he is. So we either make the mistake of never thinking about the enemy, or we make the other mistake of always thinking about the enemy. And Lewis says somewhere in the middle is the truth. And I think Peter, in this passage and throughout his entire letter, has shown us a middle way through those two extremes. Because he avoids these two extremes by issuing a call to remember who our enemy is, but also giving us a way forward. Peter encourages his readers and us to resist the enemy by standing firm in faith, which is really what Peter has been teaching us the entire time throughout this letter, how to resist the enemy and stand firm in our faith. 
He's not coming out with some big instructions in terms of spiritual warfare to combat the enemy. He doesn't do that in the final closing bits. He's, he's using it as a way to summarize what he has already said. And what has he already said? What has Peter already taught us throughout his letter? Through every encouragement, through every instruction, through every nudge to a more Christ-like living, Peter has given in his letter lessons in how to live lives of faithful resistance. We resist the enemy whenever we love one another deeply, as Peter encourages us over and over and over again, several times, numerous times. He can't say it enough because we can't hear it enough. We resist the enemy whenever we refuse to answer hatred with hatred or insult with insult. We resist the enemy whenever we face yet another temptation, no matter how big, no matter how small. And we don't give in. One more time, we don't give in. We resist the enemy whenever we seek to live out our relationships, as Peter lays out, our marriages, our friendships, our relationships with family and with coworkers, when we live them out with love, respect, and self-giving. We resist the enemy whenever we live our lives according to the example of Jesus and follow in his footsteps, no matter what comes, no matter what it costs. We resist the enemy by living faithful lives modeled after our Savior, Jesus Christ. But that's not the whole story. That's not where Pastor Peter leaves it. Peter has more to teach us here at the end before he signs off with his signature and drops this letter in the mail. Early on in Lewis's screw tape letters, which if you have never read screw tape letters, it's a gem of a book. It's a conversation between two devils, the senior tempter, Screwtape, and his nephew, Wormwood, the junior tempter, who's learning the ways of snaring humans into the will of their father below, the enemy. It's a deeply unsettling book to read. Lewis actually said that he was deeply unsettled about how easy it was to write, to get into the mindset of these two devils looking at the temptation of humans. How easy it was to slip into that mindset. He was scared by how easy it was. He actually felt dirty after he wrote it sometimes. Like he had to go take a shower. He just couldn't carry the weight of that kind of darkness. So screw tape letters. Towards the beginning of this book, screw tape, the senior tempter, is teaching his nephew and junior tempter, Wormwood, on the finer points of his human assignment and church attendance. So Screwtape's actually not too concerned that Wormwood's human subject is attending church. He says we can work with that. He instructs Wormwood to keep his human's focus on the small and petty things of being part of a church. 
He says, keep, keep your subject focused on how that one person always sings off key. Keep, keep your person, keep your human focused on the bad breath of the person sitting next to them. Keep your human focused on the foibles, the sins, and the shortcomings of the people that they sit with in their pews. Keep them focused on what feeds their judgment. Keep them focused on what makes them feel better than the people around them. Keep them focused on the small and the petty. Keep them focused. And then going to church doesn't matter. We can work with that. The warning that Screwtape gives to Wormwood, though, is to never let the human know the power of the church. Never let the human know or think about or pray about or observe the power of the church. Screwtape says, because then they might see the church as we see it and as we fear it. Spread out the church, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners, a spectacle that makes even our boldest tempters uneasy and terrified. Keep them focused on the small and the petty. Don't let them think about the reality the scope and the power of the Church of Jesus Christ. Here at the end of this letter, Peter points us back to that deeper reality. Beyond the small and the petty, beyond the foibles and the sins of our neighbors, and he points us to that deeper reality, that truer reality of the Church. The vision of the Church as a fearsome army of God reminding the early Christians that they do not stand alone, reminding us that we do not stand alone. This is why Peter writes, Pastor Peter writes, stand firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers, your brothers and sisters throughout the entire world, they're undergoing the same kind of suffering. They stand with you. For those of us who have been traveling with 1 Peter, I hope that when you're reminded that you are a part of a people, that you do not stand alone in this walk of Christian faith, that you are reminded, your, your imagination is pulled back to what Peter said earlier, that you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness, where you no longer live, into his marvelous light. That's who we are as the church. That's where Peter reminds us again and again to live who we are. Did you notice that Peter does not say stand firm in your faith? Did you notice that? It does not say, the exhortation from Pastor Peter is not to say, stand firm in your faith. What does he say? 
Stand firm in the faith. The faith. Not your individual faith, but the faith. Because this encouragement, this call to resistance, is not grounded in the strength of our individual faith. That falters. That weakens. That can be riddled with doubt. It can sometimes be very, very difficult, if not near impossible, to stand firm in my own faith, in your own faith, to do it alone. Stand firm in the faith, the faith of Christ's church, the faith of the family of believers throughout the whole world who are undergoing the same kind of suffering, the same challenges as you are, who are doing it with you. That's one of the most beautiful things about saying the Apostles' Creed together. Not just about reminding us of what we believe, but saying it together in one voice with God's people. So that even if I'm in a place in my faith where I can't say it with strength, with power, where my voice falters, I hear others say it for me. Those around me, their voice is strong and confident and filled with conviction, and even in places in which I am weak, others are strong. And their faith carries my faith. Holding me to the faith, even when I have a hard time holding onto it myself. Reminding me and each of us, of God's faithfulness, of what we believe together because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stand firm in the faith. Not in your own faith, but in the faith of God's people who stand with you even when you think your knees will buckle and your faith will give way. Stand firm in the faith. Because you know that the family of believers, your brothers and your sisters throughout the world are standing with you. This fearsome army of God's people, rooted in all eternity, spanning time and space, stand firm in the faith. Before we end with Peter, I want to take us back to that moment that story from the Gospel of Matthew. That moment on the roadside, on the outskirts of Caesarea Philippi. Jesus, Peter, the rest of the disciples. With Peter's profession of faith still hanging in the air, Jesus looks at his followers and declares, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I tell you that you are Petros, rock, stone, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. On this rock I will build my church. Peter, no matter how strong he was, is not the rock on which the church is built. Not one man not one follower. 
The rock on which Jesus builds his church is on the bedrock of Peter's profession of faith. That Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. And the same Peter who is renamed rock on that dusty roadside is the same Peter who points us to the stone the builders rejected, who has become for us the cornerstone. Pastor Peter quoting the prophet Isaiah. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. No matter the circumstances we face, no matter the trials that come, no matter the sufferings we endure, no matter the temptations that come our way again and again and again, no matter the enemy that seeks to devour us whole, our rock stands firm. Our cornerstone will not be moved. And it's the same Peter, the pastor who professed his faith on the side of a road, who reminds us over and over again throughout his letter who we are and whose we are. That we belong, as we sang earlier in the service, in body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, our rock, our cornerstone, the one who will never be shaken. So people of God, chosen by God, kept safe in Jesus Christ, our rock, our firm foundation. Hear Peter's words spoken to us this morning. To God's elect, exiles and aliens scattered throughout the region of Waterloo, in Kitchener and Waterloo, in Ayr and Baden, Cambridge and New Hamburg, Tavistock and Bright, those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ, sprinkled with his blood. Be alert and of sober mind. For your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, looking to devour you. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers, your sisters and your brothers, throughout the world are undergoing and facing the same kind of sufferings as you. And here's the promise that Peter leaves his readers with and us with. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you will make you strong, will make you firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Jesus promises that on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell, the power of the enemy, will never overcome it. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.
our rock and firm foundation. We cling to you. Our lives of faith can go up and down, sideways and backwards. You remain firm. You remain steadfast. And so we cling to you. Remind us in our own trials, in our own temptations, when our faith buckles, when our knees are weak, that you remain strong. And that we do not walk this road alone. But we have brothers and sisters, a church rooted in eternity, that stretches time and space around us, supporting us. And we stand firm in the faith that Jesus is our rock, our cornerstone, our firm foundation. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.